Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of April 13th, 2020. On the show today, listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim tells us the history of Disney swapping out original rides for modern franchises. Let's get started by bringing in the man who's too nervous for pants. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? You work from home too, Len. Don't tell me that you don't have a vast array of pajama pants. Yes? Oh, please. Okay. Social, social norms are so are, are so 2019, Jim. Okay. <laughs> have you done the Zoom video conferences yet where you're you're in business attire from the waist up only? Uh, I have a, a face that's shaped like a canned ham. It's the old joke <laughs> Nobody. You know, from friends. It's like the camera adds 10 pounds. It's like, so how many cameras were on you? <laughs> I tend to shut off the camera entirely. In fact, my default image is Dr. Doofenshmirtz from Phineas and Ferb. Yes. Very attractive fellow, I like to think. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, of new things, Jim, we all know that time is a construct, right? The definitions that we give to things like a minute or an hour are arbitrary that we just all decided to agree on, right? But they have no intrinsic meaning. And now that most of us, Jim, are working from home and learning from home, the days all kind of flow together. They do. They do. So the old system of things like Monday or Saturday just have no meaning anymore. So I'm proposing, Jim, that we use one day of the week now, and it's called Schmerz Day. <laughs> Today is Schmerz Day, April 13th. Tomorrow is Schmerz Day, April 14th, and so on. The, the system has many advantages, Jim. Calendars don't have to be reprinted every year, saving tons of money. I was about to say there's an entire industry that's, that's now headed your way with, with tortures <laughs> and, right. and, and pitchforks, but please, please continue. <laughs> no, no, they have to be exactly, yeah. We put the calendar people out of, well, no, they have to reprint anyway for Schmerz Day, and they can always change the images, right? There we go. Okay. All, also, Jim, all federal holidays now fall on a Schmerz Day, so we all get more three-day weekends. Oh. And you can do neat party tricks with this. For example, Jim, when's your birthday? I believe it's Schmerz Day the 12th, now that I'm thinking of it. So <laughs> <laughs> so mine's August August 1st, 1968, mm -hmm. that day, Jim? Yep. It was a Schmerz Day. Oh. Impressive. Impressive, isn't wow. it? Wow. I wasn't on board with this initially. but <laughs> You see the appeal of the idea. This was actually uh, Laurel's idea, by the way, and I'm, uh, I'm blatantly stealing it. And tell her to get right on the, thank God it's Schmerz Thursday coffee mugs. <laughs> yes. Yes. The thanks, the thanks God it's Thursday coffee mugs. I forgot about that. Yes. No. <laughs> uh, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Josh P., Luis S., and Hank M., and longtime subscribers, Vernon R., Liz M., and Melissa I. Jim, these folks are responsible for the running, horseplay, wearing scuba equipment, and not knowing how to do the Macarena around the pools at Disney's Caribbean Beach Resort while the resort is closed to make sure that Disney's lifeguards are still on their toes. <laughs> the interview was, so you don't know anything about the Macarena? No, I don't. You're hired. Yes, that's okay. exactly what it was. Clearly a relative <laughs> of mine. The hills are famous. We had the rhythm gene surgically removed. If you watch <laughs> us dance, typically immediately afterwards, it rains. <laughs> Is he having some sort of seizure? Is he in pain? What's what's going on? That's it, exactly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do the news. Our friend Patrick writes in with this Disney Vacation Club survey. Jim, you'll, you'll appreciate this first question. Mm -hmm. How, if all, have your plans to use Disney Vacation Club points for this year changed since January 2020? <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
given that I could see the dumpster fire there in Florida from here, uh, yeah, yeah. I can, I've adjusted my plans. So the uh, the four options were uh, I already used all of my points in January, mm-hmm. or I'm now going to bank some or all of the points that I was going to use. My plans haven't changed. I was always planning to bank my points, and my plans haven't changed. I'm still planning to use my points for the current year. But the uh, the next question, so uh, I think Patrick said that he was going to bank his points. So the next question after that was, what are the reasons that you're not planning to use some of your disease vacation points? And no surprise, the first answer is recent uh, unsettling world events. Yeah. And this is, we haven't really talked about this, but this is super interesting because I don't think it's possible for Disney to roll over points mm-hmm. into the next year. And that's because of capacity. But at the same time, you saw initially it was Universal that put a moratorium on collecting fees from the folks who were doing the monthly annual passes. And I annual want, passes, right. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say eventually Disney did the exact same thing. And part of that was to engender goodwill. You want people happy mm-hmm. and you want them to come back. In this survey, they make a differentiation between recent unsettling world events and public health concerns and issues. Oh, right. Yeah, the fourth uh, fourth thing below that was mm-hmm. uh, public health order. Yeah, but just uh, trying to gauge, yeah. well, which of these is, is the one that's concerning you most? Because that will affect the number of hand sanitizers that we order. Yeah. The thing about not being able to roll the points mm-hmm. comes down to capacity. So if they gave everyone twice as many points, let's say, because most people... I would say 75% of the people, Jim, probably didn't use any of their points mm-hmm. just because of the way that uh, the parks closed in the middle of March. Mm-hmm. So that would mean that next year they would have to handle double the volume. But Disney Vacation Club resorts typically run at 95% occupancy mm-hmm. almost year round. There simply aren't enough room nights for them to roll the points over. Given what happened back in 2001 on the heels of 9-11, how much other inventory on property is going to be available? And would there be a possibility? I mean, to the effect of saying, look, we can't necessarily put you in a DVC, but, you know, how. Oh, I didn't think of this idea. As opposed to the villas at the Grand Floridian, how would you like to stay in the main building at the, you know, the Grand Flow? So. Yeah, I guess there's no reason why they couldn't do that, right? Yeah. Okay, so the, you could do this, right? So you could say, mm-hmm. I've got a studio, the most popular DVC room request is a studio by far. Mm -hmm. You could swap out a studio for, let's say a studio at Saratoga Springs. Would you take that? Would you take as a substitute for a studio at Saratoga Springs, a room at Grand Floridian? I would be tempted. The number one park that people want to go to is the kingdom. And the fact that you're not in your suite, you're not in your kitchen, but on the other hand, you're one monorail stop away from the magic kingdom. I mean, that's, that's a good swap. And I know normally you would say, but I signed up for a studio with these amenities. But we know that Disney will already let you use DVC points for things like stays at moderate resorts when all the DVC resorts are full. Mm-hmm. So they could just say, they could just extend that. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. I didn't, well, I didn't think of that. We are all standing on terra incognito. How Disney behaves and how the parks operate and how the resorts operate once we're on you know the other side of COVID-19. We should anticipate, at least temporarily, that there's going to be some changes. But at the same time, I'm sure you saw the investment analyst who suggested it would be upwards of two years before operations at the Disney theme parks would return to normal. What was your take on that news? That seemed a a little downbeat for me. The big question is, 
going to be how quickly the economy itself bounces back. And if that takes two years, then yeah, I could see the demand for Disney not you know, taking two years to, to come back. Because there'll be people, Frank, if the economy doesn't come back, people won't have enough money to go, right? No, that's, no, it's a given. That's, that's a sort given. of a direct line mm-hmm. thing. There. But I, I do know this, though, and I, I was talking to Laurel about this the other day as we were out for our, our one-hour reprieve from being inside all day. Mm-hmm. I was like, so many people will want to travel as soon as the bans are lifted, as soon as the shelter-in-place stuff is lifted, that I can't imagine people don't want to go to Walt Disney World now. I, I, was, I was joking with somebody the other day on a text message, I'm like, look, I just want to go on Space Mountain and touch my face. That's all I want. That's all I want to do. <laughs> if you asked me, if you asked me what I wanted to do right now, it's ride Space Mountain touching my face. Is it Elizabeth Dunlop's book, The Architecture of Reassurance, that talks about that aspect of the park? You go there because there's just something reassuring about there's going to be a parade at three there's going to be fireworks at nine chances are if you get on the haunted mansion your doom buggy will turn around as you're coming down out of the attic you know as opposed to you know you you falling out i think there are ways that we can get people into the parks and sort of resume that sense of normalcy Mm -hmm. one of the big things we're sort of kicking around uh, right now in, on tour plans is how many people would they let into the parks? Yeah. Yeah. So we're trying to do that from like a bottom with a bottom up perspective, mm-hmm. meaning like take an individual ride like pirates mm-hmm. and figure out how many people you could fit on pirates with social distancing rules, mm-hmm. you know, assuming everyone's wearing gloves and masks. So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is like, take a look at the, at the Magic Kingdom as a whole, which is like 107 acres, mm-hmm. you know, assume that everyone gets uh, 36, roughly 36, no, sorry, 113 square feet, uh, which is a six foot radius uh, around you. How many people fit in the Magic Kingdom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's like 30,000. Now, granted, not everyone's going to need six feet because if you're with your family, you're not going to be six feet apart from, from each other. Mm-hmm. But also there's like back of house things that you can't get into in the Magic Kingdom. So I think that's probably all a wash. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as a ballpark estimate, I'm thinking somewhere between fifteen and 30,000 people could fit the Magic Kingdom. And let's not overlook how just the arrival and entrance procedure is going to be disrupted. Oh, yeah. Right, because Bob Iger talked about, yeah, talked about doing uh, temperature checks, mm-hmm. which, okay. I don't know how you would do that in Florida in July, though. Like, we've talked about this <laughs> in the show. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'm coming. I'm coming. In, I'm coming in at noon. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I was just on the ferry boat. Uh, I think my body temperature is going to be above ninety eight point six. Jeez, I had not even thought of that. Orlando in summer these days is going you know, like vacationing on the surface of the sun. So yeah, the thermometer itself is going to be hundred and two. Oh, I mean, dear what? Lord. What, what are we? What are we going to do here? Well, first step into our cooling <laughs> tent and then come out. You know. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Oh Lord. Have you, it's the new entrance experience is this thing called Jim. The icebox. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's right. How are they going to do that? It's very interesting. All right. On to the next question. This is from our sister from another Mr. Amy, who writes in to ask, just wondering if there's any word on Space 220 and how close it was to opening. Any thoughts on when it may open? I'm hoping our early December trip happens and we're able to dine at Space 220 when we're there. Yeah, Jib, you talk about star-crossed... Uh, <sighs> Ha! Yeah. Ah, joke, a joke there, Jim. Star-crossed, <laughs> Space 220. Look at me. <laughs> wow, talk about a restaurant that's just had every bad break in the book. Well, yeah, I mean that they lost their chef. They had to chase down a new one. My understanding, they had actually done that just when things began to sort of spin in in March. 
Same thing. I, I understand that the giant screens had been installed and they were beginning tech, but we'd heard about staffers who signed on or cast members who worked at other restaurants who'd agreed to go over. I mean, in, in theory, a lot of the pieces were already moving into place, but they're going to want a couple of weeks to train. Uh, likewise, given how tech is such a huge component of this restaurant. And and never mind the fact that you're starting a brand new kitchen right up out of the ground. I mean, it's not a question of yeah. taking a pre-existing facility with a kitchen that maybe you're, you're retrofitting some new elements into. But the other thing, too, is if, if we do social distancing, they're going to have to cut the restaurant capacity <sighs> by two thirds to space out the tables properly. That's going to be really difficult from a financial perspective oh, to justify the opening of a new restaurant. Even if you do decide to press forward with this, think about how does the gratuity situation work in a situation like that? Oh yeah, the servers are making one third as much as they used to in terms of gratuities. Uh, not good, not good. We do have some good news somewhere, don't we, Land? That somewhere down here. We in do, the we do actually. And this one is uh, this one is about Disney Plus, which just hit 50 million mm -hmm. subscribers worldwide. So this question comes from our buddy Xavier, mm -hmm. who writes in to say, uh, "I wanted to know what you guys think whether Disney will ever put all of their Disney TV specials, like The Wonderful World of Disney, or the show from the 1980s called Inside Out, uh, where they show behind the scenes views of the parks. Are they ever going to put that on Disney Plus?" If you follow the Netflix playbook where, you know, it's dynamic, you know, things come in, things come out. Disney's got this vast library that they're looking to weaponize. And the whole notion is like, well, we don't want to fire off everything at once. We want to hold some pieces back. There's some secondary rights issues. One of the reasons that season four and season five of the Muppets have never been released on Blu-ray and DVD is because um, music rights. That's it yeah, exactly. That you know. Yeah. And you know the weird part of some of the Disney specials in the 1970s is they'd occasionally do, "Hey, we're now we're hip, we're happening." EJ Peeker's going to sing a song from the 1970s. It must be him. And it's just sort of like, yeah. did we secure the rights for that beyond the standard three to four years that it was probably going to be re-aired on NBC? And it's like. And the answer is no. It's the same problem that uh, that affected the TV show WKRP. In that's Cincinnati. it exactly. That's it exactly. Yeah, yeah. But that's also the other thing that so many of these things, whether it's the famous Pirates of the Caribbean episode of the Disney show, it was created to promote the opening of a theme park ride. And certainly at that time in, in 67, nobody thought that here we are 50 some odd years later and it's this beloved thing. It was just created to promote the opening of a theme park ride. It was supposed to go in the rearview mirror immediately and never be seen again. Basically the fast food of uh, television content. Like we've done this once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, nobody thought, well, you know, please secure the music rights for the next 70 years. Because you know, when we invent the subscription streaming service. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they can work through it. But the I think the legal time to get those rights and then to track everybody down is, is amazing. That's Honestly, one of the issues with the Muppets is that you know, so many of the people who performed the show have since passed away. And so it's not even oh, right. yeah. dealing with, Deal with the estates. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's it. Exactly. It's like the children or the agent has since retired or passed away. And it's just sort of like, how do right. we do this? We've seen the same thing, too. Like when we've tried to, to get licenses for some Disney music, mm -hmm. like we've started with the services that own the 
the copyright. So in some cases, Disney doesn't own the copyright to their music. It's another service like BMI mm-hmm. that owns the uh, that owns the licensing. Let's put it that way. And then when so we've gone to BMI, they've said no. You know, we're we don't do one offs of this. You have to contact the author themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, well, okay, well, where am I tracking down <laughs> the estate of the person that wrote this music forty years ago? What? How do I even start that? But imagine that. Imagine that times 100 episodes of shows. Yeah. How many times hit the, the initial step of communication involves a Ouija board? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, yes, yeah, so that's the uh, that's the challenge there, Xavier. All right. Finally, the uh, the always super chase writes in with this. Hi, Jim, and everyone else. I'm everyone else now, apparently, Jim. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for all the work you put into your podcasts. I started listening to your different shows back in November and quickly found myself going through the entire backlog. I especially love your show in the midst of COVID-19 because not only do you inspire some Disney magic, but your humor is so grounded. I wanted to give you a shout out for inspiring me to start watching the new DuckTales series. It's just as funny, if not funnier, than you say on the show. I'm only one episode in and I'm already hooked. All the best, Chase. So, Jim, there you go. Look at you. Oh, well, that, that's very nice of you to say so, Chase. But but on the other hand, Mr. Testa here has an equally grounded sense of humor or wacky. <laughs> In fact, I, I was just telling somebody, doing an interview, uh, some uh, Theme Park Press is putting together a book about vloggers, bloggers, that sort of thing. And, and given that I'm yeah. one of the dinosaurs of the industry, I was blogging back when we did it on stone tablets. <laughs> and the story came up about, well, how did you meet Len? And it's like, well, it was the Mega Mouse meet. I want to say it was 2003. We're there with Deb Wells and Lou Mangello and everybody else. And at one point they say, let's take a group photo. And I, you know, again, faced with a canned ham, so I drift to the back. I think I said something unkind under my breath, and you were standing next to me and laughed and then said something equally unkind. And I think Bob Salinger tried to shoot the two of us because we were laughing. <laughs> and there were kids in the back of the class. That's it, exactly. And that's, that's pretty much how Len and I... And then, I and, then, and then on that trip, I crashed your... Uh, your rogue tour oh, of the animal kingdom. That's right. That's right. You did. Yeah, was just- that was that was that was back when uh, Disney security didn't have your uh, your face plastered all over the break room. Yeah, I believe the phrase is "bolo." Be on the lookout. <laughs> and that's the thing. That, that, to be honest, that, that a lot of why you were listening to this today, Len and I both share the same irreverent attitude toward the Walt Disney Company. Don't get me wrong, it's good that people are passionate, but every so often you have to take a step back and go, you understand that's the Tilter world you're talking about, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we love the parks. We do, we Don't do. Don't get me wrong, love the parks and love the people who, who make the parks, but, but, but we can still have a sense of humor about it. That's it, exactly. That's All right, folks, uh, that's going to do it for our listener questions. A quick reminder, Touring Plans is hosting a virtual movie night every Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. The movie is related to a Disney or Universal theme park ride. If you log on to the chat feature at touringplans.com or on Twitter, use the hashtag LinerMovieNight. We'll make goofy comments together about the movie as it plays. Also, uh, today, if you follow at touringplans on Twitter, you can vote for this week's film. Last week's was Emperor's New Groove. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us the history of bringing intellectual property into the parks. know that Bob Chapek, the new CEO of Walt Disney Company, is getting a lot of grief over his stated strategy of bringing Disney intellectual property into the parks, especially in places like Epcot, where it's traditionally not been. But as you point out, it's not a new strategy that they've been doing it all along over a period of many, many years. 
Yeah, and February 25th. A long time ago, Len. It seems so long ago. February 25th, Jim, on a Schmerz Day. There we go. I remembered it was a Schmerz Day. <laughs> it was a Schmerz Day. <laughs> it was. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, uh, February 25th, he becomes the new CEO of the Walt Disney Company, effective immediately. And Bob Iger takes a new role in the company, executive chairman, and will effectively focus on creative endeavors till his contract with Disney expires in December 31st, 2021. Bob has been part of the parks. It was also uh, February 25th, also a Schmerz Day, Lynn. Mm, Back in 2015, when he became officially became chairman of the Walt Disney Parks, replacing Tom Staggs. And then it was three years later that we saw this strategic reorganization, you know, with the Disney Parks and Resorts merged with consumer products to form, the, the way the company explained it, they created a new hub where all of Disney's stories, characters, and franchises could then come to life. And Chapek was made the chairman of this new business segment, which was called Disney Parks Experiences and Products. It was that Disney Parks and Products began, you know, we're now sharing the same space. As you mentioned, really spooked Epcot fans. They were especially concerned on the heels of what Bob had said. At, I want to say it was the 2017 uh, D23 Expo, where he talked about mm. how he believed that, I believe every inch of the Disney park should be magical. I believe every attraction should tell a story that resonates with guests of all ages, which is why we're putting in more Disney, more Pixar, more Marvel. Okay. Hmm? Hold on. Yep. Hold on. Go, go through that sentence, one, those sentences one by one. What was the first sentence? I believe that every inch of our parks should be magical. Okay. Who disagrees with that? It's a content-free statement. Everyone agrees with that. Mm -hmm. What's the second statement? I believe that every attraction should tell a story that resonates with guests of all ages. Okay. Who disagrees with that? Again, mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense. How do you leap from those first two sentences to that third thing? It's like saying, water is wet, <laughs> the sun is hot. <laughs> What's my third? What's my third sentence? <laughs> Hand me the vodka. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, like, oh, okay. Who, who's on the other side of those arguments, Bob? Yeah, no one. All right, All right. but then yes, we know, which is why we're putting in more Disney, more Pixar, more Marvel, and Star Wars into our theme parks. People like this, mm -hmm. people like that. Therefore, we're going to do this, mm -hmm. which is unrelated to the first two. Okay. Yeah, uh, all right. yeah. And, and then to finish out, it's every live show and spectacular should bring your favorite stories to life in thrilling ways. Again, no one disagrees with that. Okay. And then I believe every hotel should bring you closer to the magic. Again, all good. All right. Now, after this, Bob did a, an on-camera interview with laughingplace.com and he flat out said look a lot of a lot of times people say well why does everything at the disney parks have to be franchise oriented bob's response is because if any of our competitors had our intellectual property guess what they'd be doing the exact same thing we're doing but they don't have the intellectual property those franchises we do then he finishes up by saying, that's why we have a franchise orientation. And frankly, that's why the Walt Disney Company far and away outperforms all of our peers. Is that it? Really? This is the guy who's now in charge. I just want to point out mm. that that before the IP push, Epcot was what, the second or third most popular mm -hmm. theme park in the world? Yeah. And didn't have IP. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Go ahead. It's a solid point. And, but since you've seen 
Bob in this power position, again, since 2015. And you, you think about the stuff we already have underway. Should the parks reopen this summer, we'll see Remy's Ratatouille Adventure. And hopefully the first quarter of 2021, we'll get Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind. But let's not forget about Harmonious, which does characters out the wazoo. Right. The reason I brought this up today is, again, Bob has become kind of the pinata when it comes to Disney IP, Lucasfilm, Pixar, Marvel, and the like in the parks. Mm-hmm. And the hard reality is that he didn't invent this. In fact, we take a look at what happened 10 years ago this June, when the Wizarding World of Harry Potter uh, did the first one, the Hogsmeade, opened at Islands of Adventure. If you look at what Disney did in reaction to this, take, for example, the September 2011 deal with James Cameron to acquire mm-hmm. the theme park rights to the Avatar movies. Likewise, Disney's decision in October of 2012 to pay George Lucas $4 billion for Lucasfilm. There's a reason they, they did this. So, you know, One is that everybody in the themed entertainment world was kind of losing their mind over the wizarding world talking about how immersive it was and it, sure. you know disney used to do this sort of thing given the money that universal was making hand over fist from the sale of butterbeer that's why you know disney was like get me an immersive ip something that is an entire world and let's drop that into the parks because they weren't themselves confident in the stuff they were producing. And for me, I can't help but see the parallels from 1997. The second Jurassic Park movie, Lost World, had just opened in the theaters May of that year and it already sold $618 million worth of tickets worldwide. Universal Islands Adventure, which is under construction at this point, as the centerpiece of Universal Orlando's second gate, was going to have a Jurassic Park land. And, of course, the centerpiece of Jurassic Park land was going to be a clone of Jurassic Park The Ride, which had opened on the lower lot of Universal Studios Hollywood the previous summer, on June 21st, 1996, to be exact. And it had driven attendance levels for the Southern California tourist attraction to new heights, which made Disney World officials nervous. Now, they knew that opening in April of 1998 was Animal Kingdom, but there were already folks who worked on the park side of things who were kind of going, you understand that there is a possibility that when you open a fourth theme park, we will see cannibalism of attendance at the other three parks. And that's actually what, what had just happened. Likewise, Disney was seeing an artificial dip in attendance for the summer of 97. And some people were pointing to the fact, well, we just released Hercules to theaters and that really didn't do the business we expected, though theme park veterans were like, guys, we just did 15-month, 18-month long celebration of Disney World's 25th anniversary. We had a huge artificial attendance bump on that celebration. So, of course, the year after that, we're going to see a dip. But there were officials at especially at the Magic Kingdom, that were, were kind of concerned about that. So they were worried, especially when Islands opened in 1999, they were going to look that much more, you know, just older, you know, uh, faded, a little sad. And of course, the, the project that's on the books at that point is the revamping of, of Tomorrowland, the future that never was. But again, the argument in-house was, it's not a new land. We're just dressing up 
this side of the park. You know, it's the equivalent of, come on over to the house. We've got new wallpaper. <laughs> it's like we need new shows. And so this is now October of 1997. First of all, the Tiki Room had closed uh, the month previous. And word comes down that, hey, there's a new show being prepped for that. Only the, the interesting thing about this new show is that it's going to feature bird characters from, you know, the two most popular, well, at that time anyway, uh, animated features that Disney has done. And the number one animated feature was The Lion King, so they're pulling the character of Zazu from that. And then the number two at the box office at that point was mm -hmm. Aladdin. They pulled Iago from Aladdin and Zazu from uh, The Lion King. But Disney used this announcement to reveal that they'd also be closing after the first of the year, Take Flight. And in there, they'd be putting in a ride that was inspired by the company's most recent huge hit for animation. And of that, of course, was Pixar's Toy Story. But if you talk with Disney theme park fans, they kind of overlook these two changes. I mean, yeah, they, they were upset about the Tiki Room, and they were happy about mm -hmm. Buzz. But the one that made them absolutely crazed was the announcement that, by the way, we're going to be closing Mr. Toad's Wild Ride in September of 1998, and we'll be replacing that with a Winnie the Pooh ride. Yeah. I'll tell you folks, if you want a, a couple of hours of interesting reading, type in the phrase, save Mr. Toad. Right. Mr. Toad didn't close till uh, September 27, 1998, so basically... You know, Disney really re reveals that all of this is in, in motion on October 22nd, 1997. So for the next 11 months, the Magic Kingdom constantly had to deal with online petitions and folks showing up in the parks wearing T-shirts that save Mr. Toad. And this is when Disney doesn't have a Disney Parks blog. You know, Disney doesn't really have an online presence. And so much of this activity around this attraction, these organizations of, you know, Mr. Toad meets and, and that sort of thing is being done online. And, and they're constantly behind the eight ball. They're not able to react. And it's just a solid year of you don't respect your fan base. They're asking you to keep this attraction open. And whereupon in-house, they're looking at the spreadsheets that they have for sales of Pooh Plush or the ratings for the various Winnie the Pooh animated series that are on television or, or the sales of the VHSs. And it's like, look, when we open this thing, it will be a smash hit. We just have to get past all these crazy toad people. For me, it seems disingenuous to lay this at Bob Chapek's feet because, you know, when you look at it, you know, that you had Under New Management opens April 5th, 1998. You had Buzz, Space Ranger Spin opens November of that same year, November 1st, 1998. And finally, Pooh opens in June of 1999. And so Disney is doing all of this because they're fretting about Islands of Adventure, that this hot new park down the street that's going to open, you know, with this giant Jurassic Park land, you know, and it's a huge franchise for Universal. But anybody who remembers that is that Universal bumbled the marketing, you know, they, they decided to rebrand the entire resort. So when they were launching it as not just a single theme park, Universal Studios Florida, but as the Universal Orlando Resort, they initially went with the Universal Escape 
Right, I remember this. Yeah, yeah. I remember a, a dancer, a part of the mall tour that launched Universal Escape. This individual was talking about the fact that she's out in the mall, she's doing promotions around the country for Universal Escape, and all she can think of is like, when you're escaping someplace, you're trying to get away from it. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're in malls trying to convince people to go to this resort. Doesn't the name of it, you know, counter in a different way? But yeah, in addition to these three attractions that they had opened at the Magic Kingdom, if Universal Island Adventure had been a smash hit out of the gate, you and I have talked about Fire Mountain, the big yeah. interchanging coaster that was supposed to go, uh, you know, the big built it, Adventureland up behind Pirates. I still think that's the replacement for Jungle Cruise in, in Walt Disney World. I, you know, and you're not wrong. It's, it's, it's a great idea for a ride. And Joe Rohde will flat out tell you that if Islands had hit the way it was supposed to, we would have got Beastly Kingdom. Uh, Animal Kingdom opens in 1998, and, you know, the, the first year or two, if you took the Discovery Island cruise around the Tree of Life, they actually reference, and coming soon over here is Beastly Kingdom. But because they bobbled that, Disney didn't see any drop in attendance level. It's like, pff, you know, why yeah. spend money on things we don't have to? And then, of course, two years later, uh, you know, we were in the middle of... You know, what happened to the resort after 9-11? You know, all of this stuff was suddenly way in the rearview mirror. I just feel it's unfair to sort of point to job Bob Chapek and go, hey, this guy's cramming franchises and IP into the park needlessly. And it's like, well, you know, you step back 20 plus years and this was already happening, you know, and, and largely because for the exact same reasons that they were concerned about what the folks down the street were doing and, and how do we respond to that? The other thing about it is that it's it's kind of a, from a business perspective, it kind of mitigates the risk of certain things. So if you know that you've got a successful franchise, mm -hmm. what's the point of spending $200 million on an attraction with new IP that may or may not be a hit mm -hmm. if you can just plug existing IP into it? I get that. On the other hand, mm -hmm. it does lead to sort of a sameness, mm -hmm. a homogenization of stuff around the, the parks. And we've talked about We've talked about this on the show before too, but like when when Harmonious mm -hmm. starts running, Disney's going to have three nighttime shows in the Animal Kingdom Studios mm -hmm. and Epcot, all of which involve Disney characters, Disney music, on water with water screens, and fireworks. Like, what what's the difference between? I mean, yeah, you you could argue that you know the studios celebrates the movies and the Animal Kingdom celebrates nature and Epcot celebrates the countries, but they're all based on Disney films or TV, right? So they're, it, it's, it's, it's tenuous. It, and from that perspective, I think the thing that Disney run, runs into the problem of is this. People are going to pick their favorite show mm -hmm. and ignore the other two. You're not wrong. When you get in a situation where Disney has overthought something, what was going on with, with Galaxy's Edge and the whole notion of, well, we don't want to recreate Tatooine. We don't want to recreate Hoth. We want to take folks someplace different. And then to be coming up against the folks, it's like, yeah, I see Ray. Yeah, I see Chewbacca. But where's Darth Vader? Where, where's, where's Darth Vader? Where's exactly. Luke? And it's just sort of like, oh, yeah. God, we've handcuffed ourselves to this notion of this one time, this one place where we can't necessarily, you know, if we're staying true to story, bring characters Oh, in. yeah, yeah. So, so this is a great point, because when you pick an IP, mm -hmm. frequently you have to pick the setting as well, mm -hmm. right? So for Star Wars, yeah, they had to pick a, a specific time period. 
for Star Wars. But but like for Winnie the Pooh, they don't, right? For the Pooh ride, it could be. But it's 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 interesting you bring that up because that was when they did surveys about and you know, when people hated Enchanted Room under new management. And, you know, the number one complaint about the show was there's a character from The Lion King. And yes, there's a character from Aladdin, but it's not the it's genie. annoying character. No, it's not Simba. It's not, you know, it's like, you know, Gilbert Gottfried, you know, that, that yeah, that's it's the, the, it's the jerks of the movies in this new ride. Yeah, yeah. it's like, uh, did, did you not think a move ahead on this? And so. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Where's Luke? Well, he's not here. Well, where's Darth Vader? He's not here. On the other hand, if you if you you, you want the guy that what what is the name of the pirate again? The the, the one they, they they spent millions of dollars building the AA figure of who sets the stage for Millennium of Falcon. Hondo. That's exactly. Right. Think about how you had to reach to the back of your mind for that name. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm that I've only had one cup of tea today, Jim, and I came up with that. That's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not without its pitfalls. Mm-hmm. I think, especially for Galaxy's Edge, Disney will eventually relax that. We will eventually see the original trilogy characters mm-hmm. in Galaxy's Edge. The, the timeline's not going not gonna, to not gonna matter that much. No, no, no. I think to Disney, there, there, there'll be enough people wanting the original characters mm-hmm. that it'll happen that or whenever they do the next trilogy of films we'll see those characters and so the next trilogy of films i think will definitely overlap in terms of time and and we'll see the mandalorian at some point oh too. no doubt no doubt it, it, i it mean just, no, no it, doubt i mean you know, just on the on the back of the amount of child or baby yoda plush you could sell it's like look just put that character in i don't care about story continuity just put him in there Exactly. <laughs> yes, people will criticize the story continuity. It will hurt my feelings. I will cry all the way to the bank. That's what Bob Chapek is saying. There we go. All right, folks. That's going to do it for this show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On one of our upcoming shows is the design and history of Grizzly Peak, the home of Grizzly River Run, Disney California Adventure. And you can find more of Jim at JimHaleMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TutorialPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's preparing for the National Cornbread Cook-Off, sponsored by Large Cast Iron Skillets, 11 a.m. Saturday, April 24th, 2021, in beautiful downtown South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. By the way, Jim, did you know that Aaron's got a rivalry thing going with Cracker Barrel? Oh, no. Okay. Uh, he's, he's, he's super competitive like that. Okay. Folks, while Aaron is uh, preparing for that, please go into iTunes and write our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.